finally you stay away from me But I was wrong, you're still strong Go away, little man Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, uh, and joining me today on the podcast, he is the man who played Dr. Leslie Berkowitz in One Day at a Time, Stephen Tobolowski. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Hello. We just got picked up for a second season Congratulations. I saw that. One Day at a Time, the uh, Netflix original series, a reboot of the classic, uh, both of them created by Norman Lear. Um, so, yeah, you must be super excited. I'm super excited, and it's like to be in a show that is so good. And i got to tell you how good this show is. David, do you know how, how it is mostly in acting? It's like my line, blah, 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 my line, blah, 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 blah. That's yeah. kind of the way we that's, – that's the way we professionals work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on that's how, that's how I experienced the podcast too, Stephen. <laughs> Certainly it is today. The, the way one day at a time works – is we love each other's scenes so much that the other actors actually run to the other sets to watch the other people do their work. We are a huge family. We love one another. We love this show. We love Norman. We love Mike. We love Gloria, our showrunners. And it, it's, it's just a big sloppy love fest. The only thing I don't love, and I'll be right up front with you. Here we go. Is... Yeah, here we go. This is the back back scenes of the whole thing is we have to work at Sony, which I love. I love Sony in a big sloppy kiss sort of way. I love Sony. But we work on stage 25 where I did uh, the pilot of Dr. Ken, where I got my rectal exam. If you, if you fans of TV recall, I got the rectal exam from uh, Ken on, on that pilot. And that stage has an air conditioner that gives me hives. Now, I just, I don't know if it's a spoiler or not. It Probably not. But I'm also working on another show for HBO called Silicon Valley. Maybe mm-hmm. you've heard of that. Since yep, you're I, have, in, I have heard tell of Silicon Valley. You are kind of working in the Silicon Valley, as I hear. And we shot, we just finished shooting a big... St- scene on stage 25 in which I started getting hives again. So that's what stage 25 means to me. But my big sloppy kiss family is worth it. I will I will get hives. And we could talk about the hives some other time. David, why? Well, why let's you? let's talk about what you've been up to. So firstly, uh, One Day at a Time is yeah. going to be is on Netflix right now. You've just yes. been picked up for season two. So but people yes. can catch up right now. Yes. Uh, but Stephen Tobolowski, uh, this podcast went off the air uh, quite with, without any announcement or explanation in August of 2015. So it's been about 18 months uh, since there's been any episodes, and um, <laughs> I, you know, I'll just acknowledge that like part of that is on me as the producer. Like I, I did not get something out there saying, "Hey, here's what's going on. Here's the future of the show." And I think part of that is because uh, we, we didn't know what the future of the show would be. We didn't know where things were going. And, and especially for me, I had just finished doing The Primary Instinct, which was based off of the podcast. You can find that at theprimaryinstinct.com. And I was uh, you know, kind of burnt out on... Well, that po- took like a year of your life, didn't it? Yeah, a uh, little more than that. But yeah, like just a uh, little burnt out on not j- e- even this show specifically, but podcasting in general and... 
uh, was trying to kind of figure things out, figure out where all these things fit. And uh, in the meantime, you've had the biggest uh, year of your professional life as an actor. Is that right? Biggest, not only the biggest year as an actor. And by big, I mean uh, just in terms of time taken. I've been working on the Goldbergs, Silicon Valley, and One Day at a Time. While I've been doing that, I've been uh, being whipped with a wet noodle by Simon and Schuster to finish my book, My Adventures with God, which has been finished, David. It is finished. My Adventures with God is finished. It is going to be released. Uh, what tax day is April fifteenth? April seventeenth. My Adventures with God is being released. You could see it now on Amazon. They actually have the image of the book on at Amazon, and I'd love the I love the cover because it's just my little floating head. I think it's very funny. But I start the press tour to various cities, and we could talk about that later. Uh, that I will be coming to a city near you, doing stories uh, from the book. So so I yeah. Have been so busy you, you've had you've had a that. monstrously busy year. Meanwhile. You uh, have too. You have yeah, too. I, I, I've had a busy time as well. You know, I left uh, my corporate job and uh, and made a go of it at, at startups. And people who've been in startups know that like life is really nuts uh, <laughs> when you are in a startup. And so, uh, so we both kind of had things in our lives that were going on. Meanwhile, uh, podcast length episode uh, is how, how many words, Stephen? Like. Five thousand or something, ten thousand. Well, now, now it, on on the Tobo files, it's up to seven thousand. Yeah, seven thousand words per episode. So, uh, you're writing a book. You know, you don't want the book to be the same as the podcast. You're acting in all these roles. You you didn't exactly have time to just churn out weekly seven thousand word pieces. And even if you did, you didn't want to just pop out a podcast uh, and then have nothing happen for three months, you know, after that. So I think what we, we our, our rationale was, let's wait until you have time to write a bunch more stories. Uh, let's wait until I have time to record them with you and get them done and get them up on the feed. Uh, and then let's restart again. Let's restart and try to do it on a weekly basis so that we can be part of people's lives again regularly. You know, I think that was the rationale. And the fact that we're here means that we think we've arrived at that solution. Right? I think so. And and as I was telling you, I again, this may be a spoiler, but I have already finished and recorded uh, seven of, of the stories in this next group. So I think we, we already have a hefty portion that had been done. And now I just have to get them through the David Chen machine. So basically what you can expect, ladies and gentlemen, for this Let's call it a season of the Tobolowski Files. Let's call it a season. Even though seasons don't really make sense in podcast world, is there will be an episode on this feed every week for the next 12 weeks. Uh, And it may be more than that, but it will not be fewer than that. Uh, And so we're going to do the next 12 episodes, and then we'll see what happens. And uh, at the end of that 12 episodes, uh, we will explain when you can expect the next episode to show up on the feed. <laughs> That's so, right. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to do it right this time. We're going to do it right That's this time. Right. Uh, I don't even know how many people are still subscribing to this feed, waiting for new episodes to show up. If you are, thank you so much. You know, your fandom has allowed us to do things like Make the Primary Instinct. It's allowed Stephen to write his books. Uh, and we are incredibly grateful. And uh, if you are a fan of the show, do spread the word. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, so yeah, Stephen, a lot of stuff's been going on. 
in my life, uh, I mentioned, you know, I left my corporate job and started work at a startup. But um, uh, also, my parents moved from Boston to Seattle. They wanted to be closer to me because we didn't see each other very often. That's uh, great. That's yeah. that is really great. I, I saw them once every nine to eighteen months, and now I see them <laughs> once a week. So <laughs> it has been quite a change. But uh, when they moved over here, they brought all of their uh, belongings over there, which means they brought uh, a bunch of my belongings. And so, sometimes I go over to their house, and they have all this stuff in their basement. That's what was from home. what was what was some of your favorite stuff? Well, what, just, what did they bring of yours that you love so much? Just this week, they brought over these Blu-rays that I had ordered in in like 2009, apparently, <laughs> uh, or 2011. It was like many many years ago. It was like several years ago. I'd ordered these Blu-rays, and it was a Pixar triple pack. It was Monsters Inc. It was uh, Up, the the Pixar movie, and it was Cars. I and I, I literally. Did not remember ordering this, and if I had, I certainly would not have included cars. Uh, I think it but was. But you know, I'm in it, cars, right? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, why do you think I wouldn't have ordered it, Stephen? <laughs> 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 but anyway, anyway, uh, so I have a lot of old belongings that I don't even remember I had. You know, yeah. that are now resurfacing. Um, also, some hand-me-downs. You know, some technology, some uh, clothing that. My parents uh, used to own and wear or whatever, or used to use, and oh, now they're, please, they're please. cool with me yeah. having it. Yeah, this hurts. This hurts. I, I, I don't. I really haven't shared this with you, but I was a child of the hand-me-down. And Dave, in our home, there was no need for the new. Now, I was thinking this tradition could have been a byproduct of parents that set up house following World War II. Or it could have been a psychological trait born of the fact that they were both youngest children of large families that grew up during the Depression. But there's also the possibility that the hand-me-down tradition could have predated my mother and father. My parents could have been acting out the only script they knew, the script of the immigrant who's used to doing without. My father passed on a variety of treasures, mainly shirts and sweaters that never fit, I kept them in the dad section of my closet. I pulled them out on the rare days when it snowed in Dallas. He gave me a plastic skeleton we called Mr. Bones, and a few games he kept in his waiting room for patients to play as a second option to reading old Humpty Dumpty magazines. The game that interested me the most was a plastic maze. It was circular, about ten inches around, with all sorts of scrambled pathways, The goal was to steer a Mexican jumping bean through the labyrinth to a hole in the center. This was very difficult to do. But what was more difficult was finding a chunk of time worthless enough to play the game. It was fascinating. I pick up the maze, look at it, and make an instant determination as if I wanted to try to get the jumping bean into the hole or take a sliver out of my finger with one of my mother's sewing needles. I always went for the sewing kit. The Mexican jumping bean game survived for decades. Whenever I came home from Los Angeles for a visit, the whole family would sit in the living room watching football, and there it was. On the bottom shelf of the little table where we kept the stack of old TV guides, the maze's power never waned. I'd see it and think, there must be something more important I should be doing. Now half the time I would sit and watch football, but half the time I would take a walk or read a book, or practice the piano, or call an old friend. 
the Mexican jumping bean taught me there is no time like the present. My favorite hand-me-down did not last a lifetime. It was only mine for a short while during my childhood. I don't know where it went. Maybe I'll find it again someday. I don't know. It was my father's radio. I'm not sure how old it was, but I know it was older than me by ages. It was big. It took up most of my bedside table. When you switched it on, it had tubes that glowed in the dark. It took a while for it to warm up before you could hear anything. The radio had a big blank dial in the front. I felt like a safe cracker turning it in the dark, trying to find something that sounded like music. My father had tiny pieces of white adhesive tape on the dial, marking where he thought his favorite stations were. What I loved most about the radio was that it had a mind of its own. After I found a station I liked and began to drift asleep, the stations would drift as well. Music would fade, and I would enter a world of static. And then faintly, in the corners of sound, I would hear voices. Once I heard a car salesman in Kansas. Once a disc jockey in Arizona with the weather forecast. One night out of the static, I heard someone speaking Spanish, and then there were guitars and harmony and shouts and an accordion. It was the first time I ever heard mariachi. I never imagined anything so joyful. I never knew where my radio would take me. I looked forward to the static. I began to understand it was more than noise. It was the sound of distance. One morning on the way to school, I asked my mother why the radio was so unpredictable. Steppy Doors, you're listening to night radio. Night radio, I asked. Yes, some radios play differently at night. I think I heard something from Mexico. Mom nodded. Sometimes the sound comes from far away. Why, I asked. I'm not sure. Maybe because it's dark? I don't know. Mom shrugged and kept driving. Now I know the science behind my night radio. I was experiencing the Kinelli heavy side layer, an area of the ionosphere that has the ability to reflect certain radio waves beyond the horizon. I still like my mother's explanation, that sometimes we hear more when we're in the dark. Truth emerges from static. Something new appears. On my last trip to Dallas, I asked Dad what happened to the radio. He shook his head and said, Oh, Stephen, I don't remember. My mind doesn't work anymore. Well, I can't imagine you'd throw it away, I said. Dad laughed and said, Well, I can't imagine we'd keep it. But it was so special, Dad. I loved knowing it was yours. Well, it wasn't just mine. I think Papa had it before me and maybe Sam. Did your father or your brother give it to you? Oh, I doubt it. I'm sure they were going to sell it or give it away, and I took it. My parents never gave me anything. I don't mean that in a bad way. Just the way it was. I never had a bike. Never got presents. Well, my mother would make a cake for me on my birthday, unless my birthday was on the Sabbath. Then there was no baking allowed, so I got nothing. Dad paused and looked blankly around his small room. Stephen, I'm so sorry about your childhood. You never got toys or new clothes like other children. We didn't have much money. 
I was always afraid we wouldn't have enough. I was surprised. My father is 94. He's blind. He can't walk. He can hardly hear. And with all of the physical and emotional troubles that he dealt with daily that were real, what burdened him the most was something that wasn't, the specter of being a bad father. I tried to assure him that our childhood was joyful, not in spite of sharing toys and clothes, but because of it. It was an honor to take ownership of my brother's bicycle. After all, it carried him safely through thunderstorms. It survived Texas summers. It took him to the park almost every day where he won respect, playing softball, tennis, and touch football. My brother's bike was tried and proven to be true. I inherited my brother's old baseball gloves. For those who have never experienced the pleasures of a pickup game at school or at a park or just in an open field big enough to imagine a baseball diamond. My brother's hand-me-down gloves were seasoned. Years of use created a pocket that devoured softballs. That's the physical explanation. There is a magical explanation, too. Once I put on my brother's glove, I believed I could catch more ground balls. I was certain I had inherited some of his athletic ability by association, and I began to play better. We all know the old cliché, seeing is believing. My brother's glove taught me its counterpart. Believing is seeing, which is also a pretty good definition of inspiration. I remember the day Paul handed ownership of his bike to me. It was the first day of the fourth grade. There are very few days in life that live up to their promise. Thanksgiving has a massive cleanup. Christmas requires D batteries. As I've gotten older, I've learned that every walk through paradise has a pebble in its shoe. Except for this one. Mom always insisted that we dress up for the first day of school. First day of fourth grade, I wore my new black shoes, white shirt, blue jeans. I hosed off Paul's bike in the driveway, dried it off with a bathroom towel. It shined bright red and silver. It was beautiful. I rode the half mile to Jeff Davis, pedaled onto the playground. My arrival was more spectacular than any opening Hollywood has ever thrown my way. There were gasps of wonder from my schoolmates as they gathered around me. They checked out my new wheels. Some asked if they could take a ride. My brother's bike gave me an unexpected opportunity. For one of the first times in my life, I was able to exercise graciousness. I let my friends take turns round the blacktop. I watched with a mixture of pride and false modesty. Coach Shelley blew his whistle, signifying it was time to go to first period. I parked my bike in the rack with all the other bikes. I never heard of a bike lock. I could never have imagined anyone would steal someone else's bike. And no one did. I rode home that day feeling completely happy, completely successful. Sidebar, I'm not sure what successful means. I have experienced it a few times in my life, and surprisingly, most of those times were not when it would have appeared I was successful like getting a part or an award. As a matter of fact, I've received two Lifetime Achievement Awards. Each one made me feel a little closer to death. I think we feel success when we feel complete, whole. 
It's hard to feel whole when you accomplish something that separates you from the rest of the world. That's why fame and fortune don't tend to make people happy. They're often forces of isolation. The feeling of success occurs at the moment when you know where you belong in the world with all of your heart and all of your soul, and the world quietly agrees. The big problem with finding your place in the world is that the world changes. Our fourth grade was thrown into unexpected chaos when it was announced that there would be a reshuffling of school districts. Our class was going to be split into three groups. Some would stay at Jeff Davis, some of us would be shipped to Daniel Webster, and the rest of us would go to a new school, John W. Carpenter. I prayed to stay, but it was not to be. I was carpenter-bound. I was nervous going to a school named after someone I'd never heard of. Which one of my friends would still be part of my world? Brian Goolsby? He had a wonderful sense of humor. He was a great athlete. Uh, I didn't even want to think about not seeing Kathy Hodge. She was the most beautiful, the most popular girl in the fourth grade. You could get stampeded to death on square dance day making a move for Kathy Hodge. And then there was Claire Richards. She existed somewhere between the earth and heaven. It wasn't just her beauty. When she played the piano, she took me wherever she wanted me to go. I was only 10 years old, but was already aware that life was fragile. Next-door neighbors, favorite toys, beloved pets could be gone in a moment. It was another reason to honor the hand-me-down. They endured. Over the summer, I practiced the bike ride to Carpenter. It was not the same as the bike ride to Jeff Davis. First of all, it was twice as long. It began with a long, gentle downhill stretch on Rugged Drive. Then it passed the field where I played baseball. At the bottom of the hill was a bridge where Rugged crossed Cripple Creek. Woo-woo was rumored to live under that bridge. Billy Hart told me Woo-woo was a demented man with red hair that occasionally murdered teenagers. One of my friends thought they saw him drinking an RC Cola at a filling station. I wasn't a teenager, so technically I was not a target for woo-woo, but I was tall for my age. Woo-woo could kill me by mistake. It wasn't likely, but it was possible. My strategy was to get across the bridge as quickly as I could. I would be gone before woo-woo knew I was coming. After I passed the baseball field, I pedaled hard to hit my maximum speed crossing Cripple Creek. I always made it to the other side alive. I never considered the effort a waste of energy, because the last half mile to the school was uphill all the way. Even when I was little, I believed in gravity. But pedaling up the hill to Carpenter is when I learned I was gravity's bitch. Between woo-woo and the hill, I almost preferred woo-woo. My legs were trembling by the time I got to the playground. The first day of fifth grade was very different from my first day of fourth grade. I was a wreck. The stress of a new school combined with the stress of getting past woo-woo, pedaling up the monstrous hill under the Texas sun, wearing a new white shirt, blue jeans, and my Sunday shoes. I was sweating more than the peanut man of Burnett Field. My long sleeve shirt was sticking to my arms. Some strange kids gathered around me as I parked my bike. Hot out there, they laughed. Yeah, I said, I just rode up the hill. They pointed at my bike. On that thing? Yes, I said. You need gears to make that hill. 
Gears, I asked. Yeah, gears make it easy to pedal uphill, and then you could go super fast going downhill. You gotta have gears. Well, where do you get them, I asked. Well, you can't just get them. Yeah, fat boy added. You have to have a special axle. You need a new bike. Oh. At one of the meetings of the Dangerous Animals Club, Billy Hart, our permanent president, agreed. I needed gears, especially if we were going to explore the bike trails in the woods. With that knowledge, the world changed. My hand-me-down red Schwinn was no longer good enough. I needed a bike with gears. My happiness was once again dependent on Santa Claus. At school, we had a class called Library. There was even a teacher. Most of the time, she sat behind a desk and told us not to talk. When she did talk, she dedicated a lot of time to teaching us the Dewey Decimal System. She must have been good. I still remember the high points. Encyclopedias are zero, zero, zero. 500 is science. 600 is applied science, whatever that is. 800 is poetry. 900 is biography. The rest is fiction and magazines. Our teacher told us she didn't want us doing homework in library. Over the course of the year, she wanted us to read a book from each numerical classification at our own pace. This was great news. I had no pace. I didn't read anymore. That meant every day I had an hour to kill. The library was like Noah's Ark with books. The room was arranged with two rows of tables. The boys were on one side. The girls were on the other. Each table had two chairs. The first day our teacher assigned seats. My table mate was Mark Dombrowski. I suspect our teacher put us at the same table because we were the only students at the school with visually incomprehensible last names. She wanted to confine the problem. It was Mark who introduced me to Boys Life magazines. Sidebar. In language class, we learned the tenses of verbs, past, present, future. What was never taught was the grammatical tenses of names. For example, Mark Dombrowski was the formal case. The familiar was Dombo. The pejorative was Dumbo. Mark and Mark's mother hated Dumbo. I was Stephen Tobolowski. The familiar was Tobo, in reference to the great Dallas baseball star Ray Jablonski, who was called Jabbo. The pejorative came in multiple forms. For my brother Paul, Tobolowski became tuberculosis. For me, the pejorative was highly irregular. I was called Tobolousy, or they abandoned the root entirely and went with fatty or fathead. This was a long way around the barn to say Mark and I were brothers under the skin, tormented for being unpronounceable. But in our little island of safety, at our table in library class, he was Dombo, I was Tobo, and there was peace in the land. Dombo and I never read articles in Boy's Life. We poured over the ads at the end of each issue. We didn't care about the duck calls or mosquito repellent. We bypassed announcements about upcoming scout jamborees. We went straight for the ads for bicycles and guns. There were pages and pages of every make and model, what seemed to be reasonable prices. I knew I wanted both. I needed a new bicycle, something with gears to make the ride to carpenter school easier, and I needed a gun because I figured it was just a matter of time before I had to shoot something. 
Dombo explained that a rifle was the way to go, and I didn't want it to be single shot, too much reloading. I like the idea of a pump-action shotgun. Mark said a shotgun is always a good choice, especially if I'm shooting something close. The wide blast pattern would ensure a hit every time. I would just have to get used to the kick. As for the bike, Dombo said most bikes had three gears. They were making some new models now with ten, but they were very expensive. After a few weeks of research, I settled on a three-speed Huffy and a Remington 30-06 with a telescopic sight. The bicycle had a granny gear for hills, and the rifle had an effective ad featuring a young boy shooting at the side of a house. Slight diversion for an amazing footnote. I saw Mark Dombrowski in Dallas in 2012. (laughs) Fifty years after being my table mate in library, I would have recognized him anywhere, not from his appearance, but from his smile. Mark started laughing and said there was something he needed to tell me, something I never knew. He was a member of the Dangerous Animals Club, too. Yeah, Billy Hart had asked him to join. He accepted, but he never came to our meetings, and he never went on any of our death-defying journeys into the woods because he lived too far away, five blocks from us. Our world was so much smaller then. Our victories and our tragedies were just as glorious, just as shattering, but they were close. We weren't very different from those ancient scientists who knew with certainty that if they strayed too far from the familiar, they would fall off the end of the earth. As fall turned to winter, my mother asked me what I wanted Santa to bring me for Hanukkah. I showed her the ads I had torn out of Boy's Life of the Huffy bike and the semi-automatic rifle. Christmas morning, I got the bike. At this point in my personal history, I was pretty certain there was no Santa Claus. I knew it was mom and dad. It didn't matter. I saw that there were advantages to living in a non-Santa world. I could push for a higher price point on my presence. I retired my brother's beautiful bike. Every few months, the tires went flat from standing in the corner of the garage. On a Saturday, I would walk the bike to the filling station by Jeff Davis, get the tires filled with air, and ride at home. The return trip filled me with the same joy I always felt when I rode Paul's bike. I sailed down the hill, up our driveway, into our garage, where I parked it for another several months. Even after I got my Huffy, I rarely rode it to school. The gears did make it easier, but once easy becomes your goal, it's never easy enough. I often rode with Billy Hart exploring the far reaches of the woods. I rode to the park to play tennis. I rode to Mr. Dodd's barbershop. But once I was old enough to take driver's ed, even the Huffy was retired and stood in the corner of the garage beside the Schwinn. I never rode my bikes anymore, but I loved them too much to give them away. Their physical presence reminded me of what they gave me as a child. Freedom. This may have the appearance of the end of a story, a bittersweet romance, but it wasn't. Anne and I married when I was in my mid-thirties. I'd reached the stage in my life where I fancied myself an outdoorsman. I even bought some Pendleton flannel shirts to prove it. I tried to impress her that I was a fisherman, I could live in a tent, and that I knew how to build a fire outdoors as long as I had newspaper kindling, firewood matches, and gasoline. 
Our friends in Topanga urged me to get a mountain bike so I could take on some of the local trails in the Santa Monica Range. When Annie and I would lie in bed at night, I would tell her stories from my childhood, including the wonders of my brother's bike and the glorious ride to school the first day of fourth grade. On the morning of my birthday, Anne told me to shut my eyes. She took me by the hand and led me outside, and there was a new bicycle, shining red and silver. I can't remember if I cried when I saw it, but I still cry at the memory of it. It remains one of the greatest gifts I have ever gotten. I rode it with joy in our neighborhood. I rode it to Samuel French's bookstore to buy plays. I rode it to CBS to do my episode of Seinfeld. The night Anne and I came home from the hospital with our second child, our little Lord William, in a cosmic retelling of the best of times and the worst of times, our home had been robbed. My fishing equipment, my electric guitar and amplifier that I used when I played rock and roll with the slugs, and yes, my beautiful red bike were stolen. I understand that the world constantly finds ways to remind us that everything is temporary. I just wish the world had the imagination to give us the same message and leave our bikes alone. I rode to school that first day after Christmas break in fifth grade. My classmates gathered around the bike rack. Oh, they were far more impressed with my red huffy than my brother's bike. My brother Schwinn had that old-fashioned backpedal kick brake. The huffy had cool handbrakes. In all honesty, the handbrakes were not as effective as the footbrake, but when technology advances, we must heed the call, even if it means taking steps backwards. The ride home from school was always easier than the ride to school. The obvious reasons were I was happy the school day was over and heading home the big hill was my ally. But the biggest factor lay in the spiritual realm. My afternoons were filled with the unknown. I often broke up the return trip with detours. My mother was happy for me to play with friends or explore the woods as long as I was home by supper time. There was usually someone with a bat and ball ready to start a game. If there weren't enough for two full teams, we played scrub. Scrub is a game where you have one batter against everyone else. And when you got the batter out, you rotated positions. So the batter went to right field, the right fielder moved to center, and so forth. And then the pitcher or catcher, if there were enough players for there to be a catcher, became the new batter. The only variation was if someone caught a batter's fly ball. Then the fielder and the batter swapped places. This was the dream that kept every right fielder going. It's a wonderful game when you think about it. Everyone gets to bat. Everyone gets to play every position. And there were no winners or losers. It was only after our skill level rose that corruption entered the game. When a good batter got tired of hitting he would hit a fly ball to his friend out in the field. Friend would catch it, and they would swap. 
then the friend would come to the plate and do the same thing. Really skillful batters ensured no one else was able to hit. It seems to be a basic flaw in the mechanism. People never want enough when they can have it all. After a game of scrub, I was walking back to our bikes with some boys I knew only from the baseball field. I was in the middle of telling them about the Dangerous Animals Club and our exploits down by the creek when a tall, skinny boy named Neil interrupted. Where do you live, he asked. Over on Water Valley, I said. That over by Keist? Yeah. So you live over by the big storm drain? That's right. It's right down the hill from us. That's where I caught a cottonmouth. You caught a cottonmouth? Yeah, I caught a lot of them. For real? Yeah. Neil hit his kickstand and climbed on his bike. That's nothing, he said. Over on our part of the creek, we got coral snakes. Coral snakes? Yeah. You seen one? Sure. Can you show me? Yeah, follow me. I had my doubts. There were a lot of kids back then who were trying to ride to fame on the back of a coral snake. But the possibility that he could be telling the truth was so exciting I just couldn't resist it. We jumped on our bikes and we were off. Texas has all four poisonous snake species found in the United States. But I never heard of anyone seeing a real coral snake. They're not pit vipers, like rattlesnakes or water moccasins. Coral snakes are one of the deadliest snakes in the world. They have the same type of venom as a cobra. The reason there are not as many deaths from coral snakes is that they have small heads and tiny fangs. They're also rumored to be very shy, possibly out of embarrassment over their small heads. Beauty is their virtue. They're marked with brilliant bands of red, yellow, and black. The problem is, is that the king snake, which is harmless, almost looks the same. They're banded with the same colors, only in a different order. We were taught a poem for our protection. Red on yellow, kill a fellow. Red on black, venom he lacks. The problem was I heard other poems about coral snakes with contradictory information. Red on tan, friend to man. Black on red, you'll soon be dead. Red on black, a friend of Jack's. Poetry never provides a reliable protection against the world. I decided when it came to the coral snake, I would avoid any advice from the 800 section of the library and stick to science. I would keep my distance and observe. We parked our bikes on a vacant stretch of Pentagon Parkway near the woods. We climbed down 20 feet of crumbling limestone to the creek below. It was a different world than the woods near my house. Here the creek was wide. There were small waterfalls that stair-stepped down to deep pools carved out of the bedrock. Trees formed a canopy that almost completely blocked out the sky. Where did you see the snake, I asked. Neil pointed straight ahead to a thicket of poison sumac. He was over there in a clearing, sunning himself. I didn't buy that for a second. I knew from my imagination that coral snakes preferred to hide in dark places, and they would certainly avoid poison sumac. Now I was almost certain the snake did not exist. You know, uh, it's getting late, I said. I'll come back on Saturday. We'll have more time to look around. The creek is really cool over here. 
I sensed Neil was relieved he didn't have to deliver on the snake. Yeah, come back Saturday, we could walk upstream. I heard there are lots of water moccasins up there. Lizards, too. He pointed to where the creek disappeared around a bend. I was transfixed for a moment by the green darkness. Mystery overcame judgment. You want to take a quick look now, I asked. Neil was surprised. Now? You want to look up there now? Well, just around the bend. The wind started to turn around. It began blowing cold. Now that could mean rain or it could just mean it was getting late. Time to go home for supper. Mom would be worried I wasn't back. I knew I should go. But first I wanted to see where the creek turned at the end of the known world. As Neil and I walked, the darkness diminished. What I thought was mystery was just an illusion created by too many leaves over too long a distance. As we made our way along the bank, the sun always found its way through the canopy. Even the bend of the creek just looked like more creek. How much further are you going to go, asked Neil. Not much more, I said. I probably should get home. Yeah, me too, Neil. Me too. My thoughts trailed off. I had the strangest feeling I had been here before, even though I knew I hadn't. But the feeling wouldn't go away. I was positive I had seen this place before. We kept hiking. When the bank became too steep or crumbly, we walked through the water. A deeper, darker shadow loomed before us. The sunlight vanished. I looked up. Concrete. There was a huge concrete ceiling above us, above the trees. I heard a hum. It grew louder and louder. The concrete rattled. The hum passed overhead. This was a bridge. Not only a bridge. It was the bridge. I had seen this place before, but from a different angle. We were walking under Woo-Woo's bridge. Oh, my God, I murmured. What, asked Neil? We got to get out of here. I looked for a way up the bank to the street, but it was too steep. My panic spread. What's going on, Neil said. What's wrong? This is the bridge where Woo-Woo lives. He's crazy. He kills people. Kills people? Neil turned and started to run. Neil, wait! Wait, how do I get out of here? Neil shouted back, I don't know, the way we came. He was gone around the bend of the creek. I didn't join him. I kept walking. In my mind, I saw there was a way up to the street on the other side of the bridge. Maybe it was something I noted unconsciously in my bike rides to Carpenter. Maybe I just made it up. I didn't know. Under the bridge, there were the remains of a campfire. I saw what looked like the last bite of a sandwich and an empty bottle of cola on the ground. Probably belonged to Woo-Woo, celebrating a kill. I got to the other side of the bridge and looked for a way up to the street. I started to climb a steep bank of black dirt. I slipped and fell into the water. I pulled myself back onto dry land. Now I was soaked. I squished when I walked. I sat down on the bank to try to get the mud out of my shoes. As I smacked my kids on a rock, I saw something on the other side of the creek that got my attention. There was a different kind of darkness. My eyes had trouble focusing on the space. Behind a stand of brush under a horse apple tree was a cave. 
Could this be where Wu Wu really lived? Mystery overcame judgment. I crossed the creek to investigate. The cave was about three feet above the creek bed. It appeared to be deserted, at least for the moment. The mouth was large enough for me to crawl inside on my hands and knees. Once inside, it widened, and I could stand up. It wasn't spacious. It was large enough to hide a body or to sleep curled up on the floor. I stepped on something hard. I picked it up. It was a rock. It sparkled, even in the darkness. I walked to the mouth of the cave and held the rock in the sunlight. It was a beautiful piece of petrified wood with ribbons of quartz running through it. I dropped the rock on the creek bank and went back inside. The cave was a treasure trove. There had to be a half dozen big pieces of petrified wood. Some were red, some orange and gold. Some were dark brown, almost purple. I stuffed two of the smaller rocks in my pocket and climbed back up the rock bank until I was back at street level. I was amused to find that I was standing in foul territory of our baseball field. Off in the distance, I saw my bike. The next weekend, I brought my radio flyer wagon to the baseball field. I made several trips down to the cave, loaded the wagon with petrified wood. There was no way this bounty was put here by nature. Someone was hiding these rocks in the cave. For a brief moment, I wondered if I was stealing someone's treasure. I dismissed the idea. The only reason you hide something like this in a cave is that you don't want anyone to know you have it. Someone probably stole these rocks. Taking them would provide a good lesson. No secret is ever safe. But when I got home, I had second thoughts about what I had done. Where do I put the rocks? The odds were pretty good they belonged to someone who lived in the area. I didn't want to be the target of their retribution. But rather than take them back to the creek, I decided to keep the petrified wood on the brick barbecue of our patio shielded from passers-by. For the rest of the week, I enjoyed my treasures. At commercial break, I would look out the patio window of my pieces of petrified wood, and I never would have found them if I didn't challenge the creek at the end of the world, or travel through Woo Woo's lair, or explore the cave under the horse apple tree. They were the reward of courage. Not a lot of courage, just enough to realize that the dark was not so dark as I imagined. Saturday morning, I decided to tell Billy Hart about the petrified wood. He could be trusted. The Dangerous Animals Club rarely went on missions anymore. However, the existence of a cave so close to Woo Woo could be just the thing to put us back into action. I even weighed the idea of mentioning the coral snake. Billy wasn't at the park. I circled back to my house for a snack before I went to see if he was down at the creek, looked out the patio window... The petrified wood was gone. Gone! I ran outside. I saw a wagon loaded with my rocks vanish behind a neighbor's elm tree. Hey, stop! I yelled. I jumped over the patio wall and ran in pursuit. The culprit tried to run, but the wagon was very heavy. I rounded the corner, and there was the thief, Buddy Bear. Buddy was eight years old. He lived across the alley. His dad was a carpenter, and I was never really sure if Buddy was his real name or if his family just thought it sounded good with Bear. I see you, Buddy, I yelled. 
Buddy didn't look up. He kept pulling the wagon down the driveway. It's no use, I said. You can't hide. I know it's you. I'll tell your dad when he gets home. Buddy started to cry, but he kept pulling the wagon. He hauled it into his garage and tried to get in the back door of his house. I ran into the garage. Buddy, stop it. Those rocks are mine, and you know it. Buddy got the wagon into his kitchen, and he slammed the door closed. I grabbed the knob and tried to push my way into his house. Buddy was younger than me, but he was chubby. He leaned with all of his weight against the door. Don't come in here, Buddy yelled. Don't steal my rocks, I answered. Buddy pushed the kitchen door closed and locked it. He yelled from inside the house, Go away! They're mine now! No, they're not, Buddy. You stole them. You're a thief and you know it and you're going to get in big trouble. I paused and reconsidered my plan of action. Buddy? Buddy, let me have my rocks back and I won't tell your dad. There was no reply. Buddy? Nothing. Come on, Buddy. The door swung open. Buddy stood there pointing a shotgun at me. There were tears running down his face. He whispered, You're on my property. Get out of here. I held up my hands. Buddy? Don't. I began backing up. Buddy wiped some of the tears away and started walking toward me his finger on the trigger. I'm going to kill you. I walked slowly, hands raised. Buddy, I'm leaving your yard. I walked backwards, up his driveway, into the alley. Buddy kept coming toward me, looking down the side of the shotgun barrel. I kept moving. We crossed the alley into our neighbor's backyard. Buddy, I'm not going to tell on you. I don't believe you, Buddy said. You can have the rocks. They're not mine. I found them in a cave. Take them. Take them all. Buddy backed me onto our neighbor's porch. There was about 20 feet between us, and I remembered the back pages of Boy's Life magazine. I remember Mark Dombrowski telling me a shotgun at close range will hit anything. I needed to get more distance between Buddy and me. I stepped off of the porch and began backing up across our neighbor's yard. At least this way I wasn't cornered. If I had the opportunity, I could run down the alley. You know, buddy, I could show you where I got the petrified wood if you want. There's more there. He didn't answer. I took a few more steps back and ran into our neighbor's garbage cans. I grabbed the lid and held it in front of me like a shield. Buddy said... Trash can lid won't stop a shotgun. I know, buddy. But in my head, I was making calculations based on the hours of research I spent in the library with Dombo. Buddy had a double-barrel shotgun. There was a spread pattern to the blast. I held the trash can lid at an angle, making it, in a sense, thicker. I knew it wouldn't stop me getting hit, but maybe enough of the blast would be deflected and I would survive. Buddy, you could shoot me, but we're not on your property anymore. They'll send you to juvenile hall. Buddy, I don't want to die, and you don't need to do this. You could be a good friend and not kill me. I don't care about the rocks. Buddy cried harder. We could still be friends. We could still play together. Please. Buddy looked at me a long time 
and he lowered the shotgun. We didn't move. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. You're a good friend. I won't forget that you didn't kill me. Buddy nodded and wiped away more tears. You better go home, buddy. You'll get in trouble if you get caught with the shotgun. Buddy started to walk away. I called after him, still clinging to my trash can lid. Buddy, remember, those rocks weren't mine. Someone may come looking for them. Be careful. Buddy didn't answer. He walked back through his garage into the kitchen and closed the door. The next day on my patio wall was a big piece of petrified wood. Buddy must have left it as a peace offering. I no longer have my brother's biker glove. I got rid of all of Dad's snow clothes. (laughs) Who needs them in L.A.? But in my garden is a piece of petrified wood. I've kept it for over 50 years. I intend to offer it to my boys as a sort of hand-me-down in remembrance of all things that are too precious to possess and too difficult to throw away. I dug up a diamond, rare and fine. I dug up a diamond in a deep, dark mine. If only I could cling to my beautiful fire. I dug up a diamond in a deep, dark mine. That was Boy's Life, a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Toblowski. Stephen, glad you are still with us uh, and were able to be here to tell that story. (laughs) Me too. Me too, Dave. Oh, boy. Well, Stephen, if you want to direct people to one thing to watch this week, what would it be? Where can they find you? Uh, Well, I've got news coming, and hopefully it's up this week. We're going to have a brand new website up. It's stephentobolowski.com, in which it's going to have all of, of the things that we've done together. It's going to have all the podcasts. It's going to have the Dangerous Animals Club and Adventures with God. It's going to have the books. It's going to have Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party, the movie Brinkman Made, and, of course, a big centerpiece is going to be The Primary Instinct. All those are going to be there, plus my blog, and that's going to be at stephentobolowski.com. And you know how hard it was to get that website name. I had to, I had to murder people who who like bought that first. So, uh, and that would be S T E P H E N T is in Tom O B is in boy O L O W S K Y the Russian spelling dot com. And that will be all news and also news from the book tour. So I'll be coming on the West Coast to San Francisco, Seattle. And later I'll be coming to uh, Portland. And then over on the East Coast, I'm going to go to Woodstock, New York, Boston, our old stomping grounds, David. I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., Atlanta. uh, And then in the center of the country, Dallas, Texas, and Tulsa. And uh, we're awaiting uh, new news on other sites. But, But all those details are on the new website. And if you're in those cities, please come by and say hello. Very cool. Uh, as for stephentobolowski.com, Stephen, uh, pretty sure I was the one that acquired that for you, but 
Uh, th- th- maybe I was who you're so referring to. So you're the to. guy I, I had to pay off? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still waiting for that $50,000 check for that URL, Stephen. Uh, oh, anyway, man. find all of my stuff at DaveChen.net. It's my blog. I update it regularly. Would love it if you check it out. Uh, and stay tuned to this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com uh, for the next episode of The Tobolowski Files. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Adios. Adios.